What is a community of practice? And how might a community of practice help you to connect and collaborate with others in your STEM subdiscipline? How might a community of practice help to deepen student learning in your classrooms? Join us for this episode of The Teaching Lab when we learn from Dr. Barbara Reisner about her work to establish and assess an online community of practice for inorganic chemists known as Ionic. Hello everyone and welcome to The Teaching Lab. I am your host, Angela Bauer. Each week, I will keep you current on the latest findings regarding teaching and learning innovations that foster deep learning and inclusivity in your classrooms. Whether you are currently a busy STEM professor or an aspiring academic, this convenient on-the-go professional development podcast promises to keep you at the top of your teaching game. Hello, listeners. It's my pleasure to introduce to you today the guest for our program. I have with me Dr. Barbara Reisner, who is currently Professor of Inorganic and Materials Chemistry at James Madison University. Uh, She comes to us from James Madison University after how long have you been at James Madison? I am in my 19th year this year. 19th year. That's fantastic. Um, She got her bachelor's degree in chemistry, I'm assuming, Mm -hmm. from Princeton, and then her PhD, likewise, in chemistry? Yes. From you. C. Berkeley. So welcome, Dr. Reisner. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have you with us. So can you tell us, first of all, just about your life at JMU, what it is that you teach? Mm -hmm. And then we'll delve a little bit more into your teaching and learning interests. Of course. So I'm fortunate that I get to work with students at all stages of the chemistry program. I teach in our general chemistry program, primarily our first semester general chemistry course, which for us is about 150 students, and it's a lecture-based course. Mm -hmm. I teach the labs associated with the general chemistry program. And then at the sophomore year, I teach our first semester inorganic course, which they take as sophomores, which is unusual in some curricula, but it's fun to expose them to that topic early in their academic career. As juniors, I have them in literature and seminar, which is our skills-based course. So students are learning about how to read the chemistry literature, how to write about the chemistry literature. They're learning how to find things, use databases, do data management, We talk about things like ethics, the process of science. We also work a lot on building teamwork at this point in that class and trying to get students to work effectively in groups. And then the other course that I teach very frequently is our second semester inorganic course, which is a senior's course and is a lot smaller than my Gen Chem course. I can imagine. So is any one of them your favorite course to teach? I like teaching all of them, and <laughs> it's, I, I really like the fact that I get to rotate between courses because every couple of years that makes them fresh again, right. and that's a lot of fun for me. Yeah, well, that's fantastic. Well, I should point out that Dr. Reisner is well-known for her teaching. She has won the Distinguished Teaching Award at James Madison University within the College of Science and Math, and that happened in 2013, so congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> so let's begin by talking about your um, interests with respect to the teaching and learning world in your sub-discipline. So we're very interested today in talking about your work in developing a community of practice for inorganic chemists. So can you first of all define for our audience uh, the term community of practice? Sure. A community of practice is a group of people who have a shared interest um, and they either, or it might be a shared problem, 
And they're really interested in working to improve something that they're doing. So they have a project that they're doing. And by interacting with each other, they work on learning more and、um, getting better at whatever it is that they're doing. And what helped spark your interest in forming a, a community of practice for inorganic chemistry professors? Were there some specific needs that you noticed within your subdiscipline? Well, it's actually it's a funny story, and I, I have to admit, I was not the first person involved in this community of practice. So, my friend Adam Johnson at Harvey Mudd College looked up one day, and he was lonely. Um, inorganic chemistry is the smallest branch of chemistry, and at primarily undergraduate institutions, there's typically not more than one inorganic chemist. And we all come from these PhD programs where we're working with a group of people in our own little discipline, and we have lots and lots of people to talk to about our research or maybe. Teaching or TAing or whatever it is that we're doing, and Adams from a small department, and he was lonely. And not only that, he was asked to teach the inorganic chemistry course at Harvey Mudd. And inorganic is an exceptionally broad field. So we talk about chemistry having subdisciplines. We've got analytical chemistry, biochemistry, inorganic, organic, physical chemistry. Inorganic chemistry is, in my opinion, the most diverse branch of chemistry because we've got things like bioinorganic chemistry, coordination chemistry, solid state chemistry, the chemistry of the actinides and lanthanides. There's group theory. It borders on physical, biological, analytical, organic chemistry, but we specialize in just one of those things.、Hmm. And so, when you're asked to teach in these other subdisciplines, you probably haven't seen them since your own undergraduate days,、ah, and that's,、okay. that can be a hazy <laughs> memory, to say the least. And so, Adam realized he wanted people to teach with and to talk to,、mm -hmm. and so he's in an institution that has Mellon funding. So he was able to get other inorganic chemists together. To talk with each other about、uh, teaching,、mm -hmm. and everybody was so excited to have other people teaching, and that's where the idea of having this community was born. And I got brought in in the second round because JMU is not a Mellon institution, but I have a friend, Maggie Gesselbrock at Reed College, who、mm -hmm. knew me, and she's like, "We need a solid state chemist. Can you come、okay. to this meeting in California and meet these people? It'll be wonderful. We'll have fun. We're going to talk about teaching." And it was great. We had these opportunities to get to know each other and talk about our teaching and our problems, and learn from each other about how to teach in these other disciplines. Okay, that's fantastic. So, was this just all initially happening by email? Over beer at a meeting. <laughs> Originally, it started by email, and then there was—it's always the joke about the the seedy hotel in Atlanta where there was an <laughs> ACS meeting, America meeting of the American Chemical Society,、uh -huh. where everybody got together to actually meet face to face. Okay, but that's really actually brings up one of the really important things about these communities because you can do a lot of things online. Although when this started in two thousand six, two thousand seven, technology wasn't what it is today for、um, communication, but even Even with all the communication we have, there's nothing like getting together over a beer and、uh -huh. drawing molecular orbitals on the back of a napkin and、right. talking about what you're teaching. Yeah. So with these communities, there's a really important face-to-face -face、mm -hmm. component for getting to know people, and you can do that online. But、yeah. it's just so much richer when you get to do it in person.、Yeah. I completely agree. Yeah. How then did the idea for Ionic come to be? And 
first of all, you're going to have to tell us what the acronym IONIC stands for. Of course. So IONIC stands for the Interactive Online Network of Inorganic Chemists. And I realize listeners can't see things, but it is spelled by, we, we do everything with elemental symbols because we're inorganic chemists and we love the periodic table. So the I for iodine, O for oxygen, NI for nickel, C for carbon. So that's how we spell ionic. That makes for a great t-shirt, I'm imagining. Oh, we have some awesome, <laughs> awesome t-shirts. We're very into logos. So we have um, ionics, the community, that's just spelled with elements. Mm -hmm. But the home for our community is called Viper. And that's the Virtual Inorganic Pedagogical Electronic Resource. And the name was derived because we could spell it from elements. And since Viper is a snake, our mascot is a snake. Got so it. And it's it, also kind of badass. And when do chemists have the opportunity to be badass? I know. It's fun. <laughs> and, yeah, we, we spent a long time designing our snake and what the snake would look like. But it's it's... It's we have an identity, and that's actually something that's really important for our community too. Mm -hmm. Because when we first started, we were the crazy snake people at the ACS meetings. We had our temporary tattoos, we had our T-shirts, we <laughs> gave out swag, and all of these things were really critical to building a mm -hmm. bigger community beyond the initial small group who got together. We drove the project, but where we are today, Ionic is a much broader community. We have over a thousand faculty registered from every continent except for Antarctica. Wow. And we have on the website over 750, we call them learning objects, and they're just small chunks of things that you can just drop into your class. Yeah, so Fantastic. we have all of these different things. And by the way, listeners, we will have links to uh, Viper and Ionic included in our show notes. So you can reference that if you're interested in learning more. So once your website was established, um, how did you go about building your online community then? Mm -hmm. So when we first got the website together, and we actually, I should mention that we worked with an instructional technologist to do this because we did not have the ability to build the back end that you need for an online community on our own. We had Ethan who did instructional technology and also was a PhD biologist, so he got PhD chemists. Um, and that was important. But with building the website, our joke was, if you build it, they will come, mm -hmm. the good old line from Field of Dreams. We basically took all of our own teaching materials and put them up there on the website okay. just to populate it. And so we decided what we wanted a learning object to look like because we wanted things that people could use. So we needed to make sure that they were tagged appropriately so that if you're teaching general chemistry, you know what works for your unit on bonding. Or if you want some advanced organometallics activity, you could look for that too. So we have things with images that are easily identifiable to inorganic chemists to kind of tell us mm -hmm. what it is. And we just put our stuff up there. The things that we put up initially weren't necessarily very good or very complete because on Viper we like to have lots of things that will help people understand um, what do we want students to know? What does student learning look like with this learning object? Because we really wanted to get the idea of the scholarly teaching across to the community. Mm -hmm. We really wanted people to think more about instruction. So it's kind of doing it through the back door. And mm -hmm. as part of the learning objects, everyone now, that we put up now has learning outcomes. Everyone now has, if they've been tried in the classroom before, a little bit of assessment data. They have the materials for the student 
the links to resources on the web. In a lot of cases, they have instructor guides to go with them, the resources that you need. So there are a lot of very valuable things there that people can use to make it easier to yeah. put in their class. And then, of course, places for commenting, because uh-huh. community is about commenting. It's not just yeah. put something there, but put something there, have other people use it, and say how they did it differently, because none of our students are the same. We all mm-hmm. teach in different contexts, with different students, with different course focuses. and. Um, it's important to have things that are easily adoptable and adaptable. Right. Fantastic. So when someone wants to submit something to the website, can you tell us about the process that they have to go through? Is the content of what the content of their submission peer reviewed in any way or edited? It is a little bit. We operate by the model publish then filter and most scientific publishing is filter then publish but we want to make things accessible to the community and we want people to have access to things and things that are popular are going to get used more things that people don't find useful just won't get used but they're out there because you never know who's going to find it useful but when you submit to the viper website which you have to be a, a registered faculty user to do and we do double check that people are faculty It goes into our review queue, and one of our members, he is responsible for assigning every learning object to a reviewer who knows something about that. So we check that they're scientifically accurate, that everything is correct to the best of our understanding. We request that they, if they left some things blank, if they didn't specify what happened with their students, that they put those things in there. We make small... If, if someone has some problems with grammar or just language, we'll make suggestions. We don't require people to fix them. We just want to make sure the chemistry is okay. right. Okay. And then once um, we go back and forth with the person, it gets published on the website. And these days it goes out on Twitter and Facebook, too. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. So you, met, you mentioned the initial startup of this mm-hmm. involved Mellon funding. So mm-hmm. I, I know that at some point you, you received NSF funding. That's correct. Okay. Yeah. So we started with Mellon funding and really for we got a prototype of it up. And um, we were able to hire a company to do the programming for us, to do the hosting for us. But we got funding from NSF through, I guess it was the CCLI program, which is a long time ago now. Right, I had one of those back in the day. It is back in the day. <laughs> it's on a diff- way different iteration now. <laughs> I'm and, aging myself. <laughs> so am I. Um, but we um, had that funding to really get the website up and going. And a lot of it was getting together to meet, to plan the website, to design what it would look like. Because we didn't have the relationships at that point or the tools to really do this all remotely. It really does take a lot of people talking together Mm -hmm. to do this. And we would get together, meet, figure out how we would publicize this to the community because that was really important to get the word out. We started a symposium at the ACS meetings, um, the Spring National Meeting, called Undergraduate Research at the Frontiers of Inorganic Chemistry to help build the community and get more people to put things on the website. Um, We were writing articles for the Journal of Chemical Education, and we were publicizing what we did with Knightley Technology and Liberal Arts Education, um, and just trying to get the words out by talking, Mm -hmm. talking to people. And the first phase really was about the website, getting it there, and getting people to use it. 
So I know now that with your project, you are in the third phase, mm-hmm. which uh, involves assessing the impact of your site, your community of practice right. on the instructors, mm-hmm. their, their teaching mm-hmm. and, and student outcomes as well. Can you tell us a bit about what assessment of this project is looking like? Sure. So the second phase I'll just briefly mention was building the community. And we did that by having back to graduate school workshops. That's what we called them, where we would have groups of faculty, about 20 come in, and we would have a couple expert speakers who would talk about their research, and we'd pick a paper of theirs, and we'd develop learning objects based on them. So we built the community, and most importantly, we built the learning objects. We have over 750 on the website now, and at these workshops, we did a lot of faculty development and a lot of community building, talking about like, how do you teach in organic chemistry? How do you bring assessment into your classroom? What are evidence-based practices? How do you teach with the literature? Because a lot of us as undergraduates did not have an experience where we dealt with the primary literature in our mm-hmm. classroom. Some people did, some people didn't. So it was a great way for everybody to develop these experiences. But our hypothesis is that if people do more active learning in the classroom that we might see an effect on student learning. So what we're doing is we're calling it the grand teaching experiment. We have three cohorts of Viper Fellows who are going to teach their course come to a faculty development workshop. Our first one will be this summer, where we're gonna redesign their course using, or let them redesign their course, using Viper learning objects, bringing the literature into their classroom. And then we're gonna have them re- have them reteach their course again, using this, we call it the Viperized course, and see if we see any differences. We're looking at a couple different measures. The part that I'm working on at JMU is twofold. We're looking at classroom practice using the Classroom Observation Protocol for Undergraduate STEM, or COPUS for short, which was developed by Carl Wieman. It basically characterizes what's going on in the classroom. With the COPUS method, observations will be recorded every two minutes regarding what is happening within the classroom. What is the instructor doing? What are students doing? Are the students taking notes? Are the students solving problems or working with clickers? Are they working in a group? Is the instructor asking questions? Is the instructor lecturing? Did a demonstration happen in class that day? And most importantly, Dr. Reisner and her colleagues will be asking, does all of that change after a course is viperized? The second piece of assessing the impact of Viper will focus on students' conceptual understanding of two topics in their inorganic classroom, bonding in molecular systems and bonding in solids. Faculty are teaching their course however they want right now. And then they're giving the student this very open-ended question that we're trying to get its student understanding of how they think about bonding or solids. We're just going to see how the students do. After the course redevelopment, they're going to be required to do at least one literature discussion with their students, and they'll either do it on solids or bonding, depending which group that they decided to join. And we're going to look at the students, how they engage with that open-ended response later. So that's the part that we're doing at James Madison University. And it'll be really neat because I find misconceptions really interesting. And 
solids is an area of chemistry that a lot of people don't have a lot of experience with. We're used to dealing with small molecules. I even think of biological molecules, um, proteins. To me, that's a small molecule. A polymer is a small molecule. When you think of extended solids, it's just so many more atoms, and you have to deal with just the repetitive nature. And students have a lot of trouble thinking about systems that are that big. So I'm really interested to see how they think about solids because that's my area of training. So that's exciting. And then the other institutions, um, Hope College, Joanne Stewart, she is looking at faculty change. And she is working with her students. Um, They have an interview protocol to get faculty attitudes about teaching and learning. And they're going to do it before and after this experience of course redesign and reteaching. And then at the University of South Florida, we're working with Jeff Raker, who's a chem education researcher, and he's also um, associate director of the ACS Exams Institute. And he is going to be looking at how students perform on the ACS standardized exam in inorganic chemistry. So he's going to engage with that data and he's also looking at student engagement. There's a lot of work that's been done looking at student motivation, student self-efficacy and interest. And he's he's done some work in that area and we're going to look at the students in the course before it's been redesigned and after it's been redesigned because there's this whole literature from the psychology community which has been translated into the chemistry community that shows that these things affect learning. It's not just student knowledge, it's student attitude, student emotion Mm -hmm. that has a big impact on learning. So we're really excited to see if changes, if we we see changes Mm -hmm. there as well. Okay, fantastic. It sounds like a really thorough assessment plan. Yeah, we're really, really excited. I've gotten the first data back about three weeks ago. Oh, fantastic. So I'm working with my student, we're getting all the data files processed and we're going to do copus on them. Fantastic. So it's going to be fun. So I'm, I'm curious, how has Ionic and Viper impacted your own teaching? I think the biggest impact is having people to talk about teaching with in the small subdomain that I'm super, super interested in. It's one thing to talk about teaching in general. Like, we could have a great conversation about evidence-based practices across biology and chemistry, but I'm guessing the courses we teach, there is no intersection in that Venn diagram whatsoever. And so it's really nice being able to have colleagues who I can just ask a question, how do you teach that? What do you do if this happens? For the specific domain that I'm in, it's also given me a chance to learn a whole lot more about chemistry education research. That's one of the things about a community of practice. You have a problem or something that's interesting and you talk about it mm-hmm. together. And so I have a real interest in the chem ed research and it's been really fun to learn more about that through participation in the project. But also just being part of a bigger community and being able to give back to a community has been really wonderful Mm -hmm. and I've really enjoyed that aspect. For those listeners who may not be familiar with where ChemEd research is published, can Mm -hmm. you just give us a few examples of go-to journals? Sure. The two journals that come to mind for me that are most directed at chemists are the Journal of um, Chemical Education and that's an ACS journal and they publish both full-on chemistry education research but they also publish a lot of practice. So the stuff on motivation, I'd consider that chem ed research. 
practice might be developing an inquiry-based lab for your classroom with some level of assessment data, but not the full-blown research thing, but neat activities that you can do. Then the other one is chemistry education research and practice, and that is a Royal Society of Chemistry journal, and that one is freely available. So ACS is a subscription journal. And then there are more general scientific journals, like the Journal of Research and Science Teaching Mm -hmm. and things like that, but those two are tailored for a chemistry audience. Are you aware of similar online communities of practice for other areas of chemistry? For other areas of chemistry, the biggest one I can think of is um, Organicers, which is a group that started a couple years ago, and actually they were inspired by us, which is really fun. We've met with them about how they're building their community and have been sharing ideas with them. So they're, they're an up-and-coming group and really excited to see what they have to do. Um, A lot of biochemists work with Pogel, and I know there is a community of biochemists who do that. I'm less familiar with that work. And then there's the Anna Pogel Project, which is analytical chemistry in Pogel, and they've got a very robust community. Well, to wrap things up, there are two questions I like to ask every guest. Uh, The first of these is, what is your all-time favorite teaching moment? So my all-time favorite teaching moment, part of it is just the interactions with students when they finally get it. But if if I had to pick one, so I mentioned I teach a class to sophomores and then the inorganic class, and then I get to teach seniors in the inorganic chemistry two class. One of the things we do in there is symmetry and visualization. And for sophomores, it's probably the most frustrating thing they do and have done in their academic career. They're sitting there with their molecular models trying to visualize, does this have a mirror plane? What's the symmetry of it? And they just don't really get it. But I come back and I see them as seniors and they just look at it and all of a sudden they, they get it really fast. And it's just really fun to see the growth yeah. in students. I mean, that's just one yeah. example of that. But watching the students grow yeah. it's is such so a privilege, much fun. Isn't it? I, it really I is. Okay. And then lastly, if you're willing to share, we don't have to call it your, your worst teaching disaster. Maybe we could call it your biggest learning opportunity in the classroom. Oh, when you phrase it as biggest learning opportunity, <laughs> that that makes it much more interesting. All right. I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about two things if that's okay. Great. Okay. The first one is biggest learning opportunity. So one summer, well, we run a summer research program, so we have students over in the summer, and one summer we grew garden and grew zucchini, and you know what happens with zucchini. You get a little bit too much. So undergrads eat anything, so I made some zucchini bread. And I brought it to my office and was just kind of handing it out. And one of my students asked, what's in a zucchini? He didn't know that a zucchini was a vegetable. This is someone who grew up on a farm, wow. cattle farm, uh-huh. but a farm. And I'm just like, oh, my gosh, this is brilliant. You don't know what a zucchini is. But it really made me think about my teaching and is teaching as an opportunity because with our students, we don't always know what prior knowledge they bring right. to what right. they're doing. And we 
it was a good reminder that we have to recognize that they don't always have the prior knowledge we right. think they Absolutely. do, and that it is a great opportunity to just expose them uh-huh. to lots of other things. Right. But my most frustrating teaching experience is just sometimes at the end of the semester, it's frustrating that you don't the students aren't where you want them to be. And I I just find that one of the most frustrating things. And I wish that every student could get to the level that I know they're capable of Mm -hmm. by the end of the semester. And it's always frustrating that I haven't been able to get them to do what I know they can do. Right, right. I hear you. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Reisner, for sharing with us your experience with your um, community of practice for inorganic chemists. Yeah, it was a pleasure to talk with you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. I hope you've learned something new that will inform your teaching and ultimately be of benefit to your students. If you have an idea for a future show topic, please contact us at theteachinglabpodcast at gmail.com. Meanwhile, Join us in two weeks when we will feature the work of another leading STEM teaching innovator.